Prosecutors got their chance to ask Larry Householder questions directly, and when they did, fireworks happened. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Layla Tassi, Lisa Garvin, and Laura Johnston. Lisa, we got Larry Householder to talk about how big of a mistake was it for him to take the stand in his own defense? What happened to his testimony when prosecutors got the chance to start asking him about it? Well, Assistant U.S. Attorney Emily Glatfelter repeatedly asked Larry Householder to recount his testimony in court before playing recordings that completely contradicted all of his claims on the witness stand. Uh, Householder said that he had no direct control over Generation Now, which was the pass-through dark money company that he allegedly ran. But on paper, it was run by Jeff Longstreth, who was a householder operative. And he testified that Generation Now existed to promote issues important to him. And he shared the office with Generation Now staff. And then Householder was said, asked, you know, if he punished donors who supported his rival for House Speaker. He said, I didn't punish them. Glatfelder rolled the tape of Householder and lobbyist Neil Clark discussing rival donors and saying, quote, we can screw them over later. <laughs> Although screw is not the word they used. Exactly. And then and Householder said that Lee hardly interacted with uh, First Energy CEO Chuck Jones and Executive Mike Dowling on that 2017 trip to Washington, D.C. Glatfelder whipped out some photos of Householder, his son, and others in a limousine on January 18th of 2017 with Mike Dowling prominently in the foreground of the photograph. And there were phone records that show that Householder and Dowling called each other seven times during that Washington trip. So yeah, and and as we know, la- yesterday the defense rested, so closing arguments will begin next week. And I think after seeing what happened to Householder on the stand, Matt Borges declined to testify. <laughs> or he just had smarter lawyers. Look, the problem they have here is say the jurors weren't yet convinced because they hadn't heard the closing arguments that all the elements of the crime are there and that Larry Householder might be believable based on his first day of testimony. The problem is once he's caught in one lie, you, you immediately question everything he said. He was caught in a gigantic series of lies and then tried to toss it off. Like at one point he's shown a picture of him with people that contradicts what he said the day before. And he goes, well, I think the timestamp on the photo is wrong. Nobody's buying that, man. No one is going to see that and go, oh, okay, that's a good excuse. They're going to look at him and think, man, you are really a bad liar. That Once you lose your credibility, you're toast. I mean, they're going to look at you completely differently. This was a big mistake to put him on the stand if he was that unprepared for what they had. Layla and I were talking yesterday that when you cover courts, there are moments in a courtroom that are electrifying. It's it's the highest drama that a reporter can really follow. It's nothing like a counsel hearing or something. I would have loved to been in the courtroom when the prosecutors stood up to systematically shred his testimony. I would say, you know, and the defense called very few witnesses and there was not, I mean, they were just trying to paint a soft picture of the defendants when they didn't really have anything to contradict what, what the, what the state had. Yeah. I, I, I just don't understand what they did because it really, Jake has written, Jake Zuckerman has written a terrific story that just goes point by point of how they destroyed his testimony I and mean, he just left him with nothing. 
I I don't get it. I wonder if Borges was planning to testify. You raise an interesting point. <laughs> he watched this and thought, no. I because if you think you have the chance of persuading the jury with a reasonable doubt, which is what you need here, you count on your lawyer to do a masterful closing argument to to say, look, the elements aren't here and there's a perfectly legitimate explanation for why this happened. You gotta consider it. But once your client gets on the stand and is caught in one big lie after another, how do you how do you begin to to fix that? I wonder if there's going to be a, a you know a betting pool on how quick the jury comes back on this. I don't know. I mean, one thought is one of the reasons his lawyers have been so combative is to build up a long line of appeals that they can keep him if he's convicted, keep him out of prison for a long time while they try and say, oh, the judge was hostile or they wouldn't let us do a line in questioning and find some technicality that gets him back for another trial. Uh, Because there's been a lot that's happened in this trial that didn't make a whole lot of sense. I do think his testimony yesterday I mean, if I were a juror, this would be a really easy choice. I mean, after hearing what he says, after seeing what the evidence is, this seems like open and shut. Not with Borges. You know, Borges, there's the $15,000 check, but could his attorneys argue that that's not really bribery, that's just doing business? He was trying to find out what his opponents in a campaign were doing, and he was willing to pay for it. Is that bribery or is that just politics? We shall see. (laughs) It does sound like it was high drama, though. Um, We'll have to see if the jury gets the case today or if the judge decides to do the charge on Monday uh, so that there's not the weekend in between the charge and when they start talking to each other. We'll we'll see the closing arguments. The closing arguments, Laura, they are today, right? I believe so. That's the plan. There was another medical emergency yesterday in court, which delayed some things, but my guess is they'll finish today and then they'll send the jury home and come up with instructions on Monday. But that is just a guess. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How did Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost, an avowed abortion opponent, rule on the propriety of the language in a proposed amendment to the Ohio Constitution enshrining a right to abortion? Layla, he wrote one of the more interesting communications we've seen out of an elected state official in a long time. This was interesting. The The attorney general's only role in this process is to determine whether the language submitted is a fair and truthful summary of the amendment and doesn't conflict with other relevant parts of the Constitution. So after his analysis, Yost certified the petition summary. And in the letter, he said he was bound by law and duty to certify the amendment as long as it met those legal requirements. He basically said the law limits the decision-making ability for those who temporarily exercise public authority. He said, in this matter, I'm constrained by duty to rule upon a narrow question, not to use the authority of my office to affect a good policy or to impede a bad one. A duty that never compels an unpleasant duty or act is is not duty, but self-service, the opposite of public service, government by solipsism. That way lies chaos and ultimately the breakdown of self-governance. The, um, you know, the, the, I, I thought that was so well said. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, the sad thing was that he felt the need to say it because in the end, he did his job. 
this is what he's elected to do. It's pretty basic. Does the language meet it? But he knows in today's climate where Donald Trump has unleashed the dogs that elected officials violate their duties. We saw it in elections where people didn't do their duty. What was it? The Arizona attorney general didn't do his duty in making sure to unveil that there was no evidence of election fraud. We've had no end of it. You've had presidents doing way more than they're empowered to do. That's why the college loan uh, program is probably going down. The president really doesn't have the power to do that. That's something Congress has to do. So Dave Yost had to lay that out to say, hey, all these people that have come to believe that public officials could do whatever they want, Mm -hmm. you can't. I'm doing what I'm constitutionally required to do. And he wrote it very strongly. We talk about Dave Yost a lot on this podcast. There are things that he's done that we've questioned, but we've never questioned him about doing the basic duties of his job. He did the right thing here. He deserves a salute. And I do think his colleagues in government on both sides should read what he wrote because he is following the standard by which they all should behave. It's disappointing that we needed him to write a letter to explain that he's doing his job appropriately. Yeah, I, I, the other th- it worked, though, because the Right to Life folks put out a release very quickly, not questioning what he did, say, but saying our next step is to, to mm. prove to voters why this is bad. So maybe he was convincing in the way he articulated it. Look, he's also a pragmatist. He knows that the bulk of Ohioans want abortion to be available, and he's dead set against it. So he understands, I think, that there's going to be something. And how do you get there? I, th- I don't think he wants this amendment to pass. Uh, I think he's hoping legislators will come up with some kind of compromise. But he did his job. You know, that's I, you, I salute him. And that's a letter I think we ought to uh, save. Laura, we did publish that in full, didn't we? Yes, we did. And I I was like Layla, well, like all of us, I think I was impressed. I understand that we shouldn't have to say that we're just doing our job, but it is nice to see an elected official speak up for the people and doing what's right rather than party. Well, calling out that it's not happening in America today and that's not okay. that Mm -hmm. we have a job to do. We're elected to do it. We swear an oath. All those folks on the election commission, many of his Republican colleagues in state elected office violated their oath. They did not create the maps they were required to by the constitution. He didn't mention that though in his letter. He did not mention (laughs) that. I mean, that's like calling out five of the most, um, powerful people in state government. So no, I mean, he didn't name any names. No, he's all. just said in general, th- this is, this is something that shouldn't happen. And, and I do believe there are people that are opposed to abortion that would have preferred he violate his oath, his duty in the law, which is sad because no public official should. So good for Dave Yost. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What percent of the calls to Cuyahoga County about what was formerly known as food stamps go unanswered? And what can people do to get answers? Laura, this is pretty sizable percentage. This is massive. I had no idea how big this problem was. It's so bad that officials likened calling this government agency to winning a lottery. You just have to get lucky to get your call answered because two thirds of callers do not get through. And these are not just people like calling to ask customer service questions. The SNAP program we're talking about, 
that requires you to call in every so often in order to stay on the program. And Cuyahoga County received more than 96,000 calls in December from people on SNAP or Medicaid. The calls that were answered waited on hold for more than 40 minutes on average. And so if you don't get through, you just keep calling. That's It's incredible. Everybody recognizes how big of a problem this is. They're trying a bunch of solutions, but they don't have a, a silver bullet yet. Do, do they explain why they can't answer the calls? Right. They just don't have enough people. I mean, staffing is a problem. Also, during the pandemic, some of the calls were pushed off, which created a backlog now. But the entire state has this problem. It's about a third of calls everywhere in the state do not get answered. And over the entire year in Cuyahoga County, it was about half. It's worse in the big cities because there are probably just more people calling and that's where the the need is the greatest. But under the way that the federal program works, you have to call in to have these interviews and you have to to sign something audio like an audio signature that takes something like 10 minutes to get through. So you can't automate the entire process. They are trying some things. They're, they're going to have forms available that people could fill out and then mail or email or fax in that might be able to help. But these applications are time consuming and you have to talk to a real person. What? Why aren't they contracting out with a call center? That's what a lot of businesses do. There's entire this entire industry of folks that this is what they do. They have enormous phone banks and there's some training done. And the whole purpose is to facilitate this. So if they can't hire enough people to do it, why not contract it out? I'm not sure the answer to that. I mean, I, obviously I know that's what they did with the unemployment during the pandemic. Obviously it's not the perfect solution all the time. They are trying a couple of things like they possibly could call consumers right, rather than answering the calls, but no idea if that would end up being a good time for someone to talk. And how many times do you get an unknown number? You're like, I'm not answering that. I, I just feel like they'd be leaving a lot of voicemails. Yeah, I hate to think that this is happening because these are the folks that have the least ability to be heard. And well, I mean... One doctor said, it's really hard to even tell people to call the call center. How do I tell a Farsi-speaking mom who has all these other problems that she has to get through on a, on a phone call to get her, her SNAP benefits? So I think it's, it's not a user-friendly process. And there are more people calling. So the, before July, the county processed about 5,300 new applications for SNAP every month. It jumped to 8,000 a month in August. We've written about the problems that are coming down with the SNAP benefits being discontinued. And if you miss these interviews, you get thrown off the rolls and then you have to reapply. So it's, you know, it just creates more paperwork. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Max Miller is one of our newest members of Congress in Northeast Ohio, and he has some strong ideas on Ukraine war aid. Lisa, is he against it? Not per se, but Max Miller, the Republican from Rocky River, returned from a visit to Ukraine on a fact-finding mission with some other uh, Republicans. Um, He's demanding more transparency by the Biden administration, or if he doesn't get that, he won't support any more aid in the Ukraine war effort. He says he wants to give the country the tools they need to win the war, but he said, quote, I am not for blank checks and actions that draw us into conflict with boots on the ground in Ukraine. 
not really sure what he meant by that. Um, he met with, he and his uh, delegation, which included Daryl Issa from California and three uh, Texas uh, lawmakers. They met with President Vladimir Zelensky and a war crimes prosecutor. They did see a mass grave that held mostly women and children. Zelensky told Miller that they're working on corruption in Ukraine, but uh, he says... Miller says the U.S. has to be more strategic with what weapons they provide. So he said, for instance, they should be probably providing them more air-to-surface missiles instead of F-16 fighter jets for taking out drones and missiles. And um, But he did say that he wants to prosecute war criminals. The prosecutor in Ukraine has identified several Russians who committed war crimes. They're being prosecuted in absentia. But Miller says when, he said, when when Ukraine wins the war, I believe we can bring these people to trial. He's right. There needs to be an accountability for the huge amount of money we're spending to send things over there. You don't want the stuff to go and then somehow get squandered in corruption. Uh, it's good that a member of Congress is thinking about an oversight role in a proactive, positive way. And I guess in the point, you know, the example I showed, you know, the F-16 fighter jets are not good at taking out drones and missiles. It's like using a bomb to kill a mosquito. Or, or a balloon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it was interesting to see. You know, he's new, so we haven't heard a lot from him. Uh, he's overshadowed by his colleague, Jim Jordan. Uh, so it's good to hear from him. And it's interesting where his positions are. They're not, they're not bombastic at all. He's saying, hey, let's be sure. Uh, good to see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The airport officials in Cleveland listen to you on this podcast, Layla. What's the big announcement about Cleveland Hopkins International Airport bathrooms that you've expressed some prior thoughts about? Well, I'd, I'd like to believe this is a case of, of Layla's opinion moving the needle, but <laughs> it's it appears I'm certainly not alone in my hot take on the gross bathrooms at Hopkins. The, the, the cramped and, and dingy bathrooms consistently rank at the top of the list of complaints among travelers. So I would say that they're the ones moving the needle here with their responses to surveys. But the city this week was awarded $1.6 million to renovate the airport's 13 busiest bathrooms, courtesy of the Federal Aviation Administration and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, which Congress passed back in 2021. The federal grant will cover 80% of this $2 million project and airport funds will cover the rest. Unfortunately, one airport official who spoke with Susan Glasser described the bathroom project as more of a refresh rather than a, a remodel. So the bathroom footprints are going to remain the same. That means they won't be getting bigger stalls that can comfortably accommodate travelers and their luggage. That's going to have to wait until they eventually build an entirely new terminal if they can ever get the funding together for that. But these upgrades to the restrooms should make them easier and quicker to clean. There will be new fixtures and uniform surfaces. They say that the many different surface types that they have now slows down the cleaning process because they have to constantly be switching cleaning products for these different services, surfaces. And, and they also claim they claim that they clean the bathrooms at least once an hour. I highly doubt that. If, if that were true, and if indeed the process is slowed down by all the different services that need attention, they would finish cleaning and have to immediately start cleaning <laughs> again. And I promise you that's not happening. So anyway, they're going to start this work in the spring in the hopes of finishing before the busy holiday travel period next year, this year. Yeah. Well, I, the, 
this is all great. I hope they do it. But when we talk about the condition of the bathrooms, it feels like they haven't been cleaned in days. I mean, it, it, you, it, there's just stuff everywhere. There's no dispensers filled. It, it I, it's hard to believe. Right. When they say hour, An I, hour, you really do wonder if if they've been in there at all because it's so overwhelmingly bad. Right. And so I, I it, no matter what they do for these upgrades, if they don't have the money and the staffing to actually do the cleaning doesn't mean anything because they're bathrooms. They need to be cleaned. Right. Exactly. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. You might have thought that if Ohioans spent $1.1 billion on sports betting in the first month it was legal, they might have cut back on what they gambled in casinos and racinos. Laura, yes? Nope. <laughs> I would think the physical sports books would be competing with the brick and mortar casinos. They have a similar atmosphere, but they must be really different demographics. And apparently the gambling industry had predicted that, you know, the more gambling there is, the more people would gamble, not that they were going to hurt each other. So the state's 11 casinos and racinos took in $196.8 million in January. That's another record. It, basically every month seems to break records. Uh, that's up from the $171.2 million record set in 2022. And the one, what we're talking about here is the money kept by gambling houses after paying out their winnings before state taxes and fees. So basically what Ohioans lost. What I, I, It is surprising how much money was gambled in Ohio in January. I guess nobody on this podcast is a gambler. Uh, I just, I find that extraordinary. When you add that to the $1.1 billion, it's like its own little economy. That's probably a bigger economy than some of our smaller states. Probably. I mean, it's huge. And I don't really have friends or family that are regular gamblers. I, I think people have, you know, do it sometimes as a fun night out. I have to think that the people who go to a slot machine or play blackjack are not necessarily the same people who want to bet on a game, right? I mean, obviously sports gambling at, at this point is much bigger industry, but I think that gets that really sporty, you know, um, fan base energized. I mean, they gambled probably in one month more than, than the entire budget of Parma, the seventh biggest city in Ohio. It's just, that's a lot of money that uh, people- I know. And we're always talking about how we need more money for all of these things, right? We need to build a jail. We need to do all sorts of- uh, say yes to Cleveland. And it's like, maybe if we, everybody just gambled on, on infrastructure, we would be better off. It does demonstrate pent up demand. There, there was an argument back in the casino gambling debate, whether people in Ohio really wanted to gamble. The answer is very clear. You're listening to today in Ohio. Why would anyone get a concealed carry permit for a gun now that anyone can carry one without a permit? Layla, how far did the number of permits fall last year? Pretty precipitously, I'd say. Reporter Jeremy Pelzer tells us that in 2022, Ohio sheriffs issued just over 27,000 new concealed carry permits, and that was down 71% from the previous year. And it was the fewest number of permits issued in any year since 2007, which was three you know, th three years. We're now three years after, or that was three years after the uh, the state first authorized concealed carry. So in Cuyahoga County, they issued 638 CCW licenses, and in 2022, and that's less than half uh, what they did before that. So uh, renewed CCW permits fell 
42% from 108,000 uh, in 2021 to 62,700 in 2022. The last time renewals were that low is 2017. So this drop isn't surprising at all, given the new law that legalizes concealed carry without a permit. Of course, unless you know state or federal law prohibits you from owning a gun for particular reasons. But there are reasons why one would still apply for a CCW permit. For one, other states still do require them. But for two, some gun sellers let buyers skip the background check if they have a CCW license. So it's about convenience for them. We'll have to look at the industry that it cropped up to do the training for these permits because it must have been crippled by the change in the law. How many of them are still around? How many of them have gone out of business? Uh, they were pretty much everywhere for a while, and I can't imagine that they're still going strong. You know, there was there was one statistic in the story that I found troubling. The, the number of permit denials fell by about 70% statewide from 2,668 in 2021 to 825 in 2022. I mean, that makes sense because the number of applications have dropped, right? But But we could extrapolate that to mean that the more than 1,800 people who would have been denied their permit in a given year for whatever reason are out there right now with concealed guns anyway. <laughs> oh, that's not a scary thought. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, that is kind of scary. All right, good stuff. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How many years in a row has the Cleveland Clinic been way up near the top of Newsweek's ranking of the world's best hospitals, Laura? Five. So this is the fifth year in a row that the main campus of the clinic was named as the second best hospital in the world. This is from Newsweek's, their list of world's best hospitals for 2023. And the clinic ranked both number two in the world and in a separate listing for the U.S. hospitals behind only Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. So obviously it is the best in the world, according to Newsweek. And they they partner with Global Data Farm for, sorry, firm, Statista, they produce the rankings based on four sources, online surveys, those are completed by more than 80,000 medical experts, plus results from patient hospital experience studies, hospital quality metrics, and patient reported outcome measures. So hopefully they're taking into account like how people feel once they get out of the hospital. It, it, there are a lot of international hospitals on this top 10 list. This is competing across the world. So mm -hmm. to be ranked number two is pretty meaningful. Right. Most of them are in the U.S. and the top uh, Mayo Clinic, Mass General in Boston, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and Toronto General in Canada. We did have other ones that ended up on lists. So the five additional clinic locations were among the best hospitals in the U.S. Fairview was 38. Florida was 45. Akron General at 87. Hillcrest at 110. Avon at 329. And I believe UH made the list as well. They were the second highest ranking among Ohio hospitals, number 29 in the U.S. and 143 in the global ranking. So not too shabby for Ohio hospitals. What wasn't in the top 10 is that New York hospital that ratcheted up in the U.S. News oh, and World Report. That Langone, we all, yeah. Yeah, we were all talking Langone. about where did that come from, but they're not <laughs> being ranked here. You're listening to Today in Ohio. we got a little extra time, so I want to ask you all something because uh, I might write a column about it. I've been getting emails from people uh, about units of measure that we put into stories. The latest one was about metric. And the argument is, in most stories you, you write, you use the courts, leaders, inches, feet, the, the imperial system. 
But if you want to be accessible to people who move here from elsewhere, Ukrainians who've, who've moved into the area, they don't know that stuff. And it would be helpful to them if you put in parentheses a metric equivalent. I've also gotten emails from people saying we shouldn't be using BC and AD anymore. It's not politically correct, that there's a more proper proper system and for other places in the world. Again, they, they use other, other ways. That's a, a lot of extra work. Uh, we'd have to teach our staff how to do the conversions <laughs> or use the conversion tool in their phone. But what do you think? Should we be doing that? I might write a future column about this. Well, I, I have seen a trend, and, and this would be on bigger sites like Associated Press and, and, and CNN, where they do that, but they have the imperial measurements in parentheses, and they're using the metric system as their first, you know, first uh, mention. Boo. <laughs> I'm an imperial guy all the way. I don't know. I, 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 the, the, when they were trying to get everybody in America to, to follow the metric system when I was a kid and after, it, it sounded less useful because people really aren't adopting it. But when you think about being accessible to people from elsewhere, it sounds like it might be the right thing to I, do. I don't know. Okay, so I go back and forth to Canada, and I'm not great with kilometers or really any metric. I'm sorry, I'm not. Although meters, meters are good, right? But the thing is, I don't think most people have an idea, and correct me if I'm wrong, what a quart really looks like. I, I don't know. Like, okay, a gallon, I can picture the gallon of milk. I know what a pound is, but, and I can do the kilogram in my head. But I think a lot of these measurements, it would just be much more useful to be like, it's about the size of this. Because like, if you tell me it's grams or whatever, I literally, I need some, a reference that makes sense to my brain. I, but for people coming here from elsewhere, what makes sense to their brain is the metric because they've grown up with kilometers. But if you have, if you have a, a, an example of something, I think that would help everyone. But sure, I'm all for making it easier to understand and maybe eventually we'll catch on with the rest of the world and go metric. No, I, I, I no, hope not. No, that's not, not going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> not as long as I'm alive. So the Lisa, you remember oh. when we were kids that are not even kids, young adults, they actually converted gas pumps to liters. Remember that? Yeah, but it didn't last very no, long. No, it was confusing as all get out. You couldn't tell what, what you were paying for gas. It was not an effective system. So um, it, it, is the question whether we should add this to our content in parenthes like a parenthetical yeah. delineation? Well, what's, I kind of think that there are some narratives where that would really be clunky. You know, like you're trying to paint a paint a picture of something, and uh, you know he he walked the ten feet or three meters to the death chamber, <laughs> or whatever. You know, like it's going to get in the way. Of no, and you're absolutely right, Layla. It does take you right out of the story every time you see that, because your brain is automatically trying to you know conf you know conflate the two. Yeah. And yeah, it just takes you right out of the narrative. I agree. But in a gas price story, sure, where sure. we're talking about the price of gas. If you are a recent arrival in this country and we're talking about how much a gallon of gas has increased in cost, it's not going to mean anything to you. And I don't think it would be awkward there I agree. You know, to six dollars per, per liter. Anyway, it, it was an interesting question. It, it's coming up more and more frequently, so I'll, we'll have to think about it some more. It's today in Ohio. That's it for the week. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens. We'll be back Monday talking about some more news. <laughs>